0: Our scripture for meditation today is a responsive reading. And that's going to be Psalm 145, page 838 in the Trinity. When you come to that, please stand with us. Page eight thirty eight in the Trinity, Psalm one forty five. Let's begin. I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever. And
1: ever.
0: Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise.
2: His greatness no one can fathom.
0: One generation will commend your works to another, they will tell of your mighty acts,
2: they will speak of the glorious splendor of your and majesty, and I will.
0: They will tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds.
2: They will celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness.
0: The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good
1: to all. He has compassion on all he has made.
0: All you have made will praise you. O Lord, your saints will extol you.
2: They will tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might.
0: So that all men may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your
2: kingdom, your kingdom is, is a <clears throat> kingdom, and your dominion endures all generations.
0: The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made.
2: The Lord upholds all those who fall and lifts up all who art thou down.
0: The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food at the proper time.
2: You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every thing.
0: The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made.
2: The Lord is
1: near to all.
0: He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them.
2: The Lord watches over all who love him, all who make evil
0: My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord.
1: Let every preacher praise his holy name forever and ever.
0: May God add his blessing to this holy and inspired scripture. Tim, would you lead us in opening prayer? Amen.
1: Will you take your red hymnal this morning and turn to number three hundred and ten? 310 in the red. you started it last week
0: Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 15. It will be verses 9 through 17, page 1677 in your pew Bibles. When you come to that, please stand with us.
3: John, chapter 15, verse 9 through 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this. That he laid lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command. Love. Love. Each other. The Lord add a blessing to the reading of His word.
1: Could you take your red hymnal again and turn to number 55? 55 in the Trinity.
2: Our scripture this morning is John chapter 15 verses 9 and following. We have heard this incentive given by Christ to encourage us to abide in him as true branches, the incentive being the confidence that we remain in Christ's love. No true child of God wants to be unsure of that. We want to know that we are loved by God. But how do we know this? I mean, Christ tells us the conditions of remaining in his love, which by meeting them, we gain the assurance of knowing that we do rest in God's love and obedience to Jesus' commands. Jesus says, if we love him, we will obey his commands. So there's one way we can know. Love for the brethren. That's the one we looked at of late. We're commanded love because from God's viewpoint, love is not firstly feelings, but the act of giving to another those good and necessary things which they require. This is how we can be commanded to love a neighbor who may be a bear bear to live with next door because of the fact that they're not a believer and we may have trouble loving them because they act like the enemy to God that they are. God isn't talking about feelings, but about the giving of oneself to aid others through kindness. Commanded love because, well, love is work. It is not the result of, well, I just fell into it. People talk about falling into love all the time. Love is a determination of the will. It is a choice that we make. God did not fall in love with us as his people, but rather he set his affections of love upon us on purpose. By his Spirit's help, we can do the same with those whom God commands us to love. Feelings will follow actions. As we invest ourselves in others, we cannot help but learn to love them. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will also be. Now, today I want to pursue a bit more this business of loving one another as God loves. The Lord Jesus is our pattern and we may learn this truth with regard to his example. It is a charge that we are to love the brethren. We have observed the obvious. If love is a charge, then such love is firstly commanded love for reasons we've already studied. Sacrificial love is given to us by God in his example. Not only did God give his son to the world, giving, being expressed in his love, God so loved that he gave, the most famous verse in all the Bible, but we know that God gave his son to the cross, which makes us shake our heads. Not only did Christ, serve the church, work hard, teaching his disciples, but Paul says that he gave himself up for her, for the cross. Ephesians 5.25. That's sacrificial love. Loving someone to the point of personal love and personal cost. We're going to celebrate the ordinance that Christ has ordained for the church. We'll celebrate that today. This is so important that he doesn't want us to forget what it costs God to redeem us. It's in our text as well, verse 13, greater love is no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friend. He is giving is giving is a demonstration of our love. But sacrificial giving is what Jesus calls greater love. Greater love. In fact, the greatest expression of love since he reads this way, greater love has no one than this. We could say it this way. The intensity of our love for one another can be measured by the element of sacrifice that is found in it. How so? Well, because only the non-selfish will give sacrificially. Selfishness or self-centeredness is on the getting side of the world's definition of love. They approach it with what's in it for me. To the degree that you're selfish, your love for others will be hampered. The more selfish you are, the less giving you will do. Giving mind, not selling, not bargaining, but a giving freely, is the love that Christ promotes. It's not a gift if you expect something in return. But the reverse is also true. The less selfish you are, the more giving you will be. You will extend yourself beyond what others expect of you or beyond what the criterion of society might be. Thus Jesus taught his disciples, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, then go two miles. You see how we're being instructed. Give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What is the meaning of this going the extra mile instruction? Well, the Romans had the policy that any subjugated people, any subjugated people, any satellite nation, which they had conquered, automatically became the serfs of the Roman Empire. Palestine at this time fell into that category. The Great Maccabean Wars during the Intertestament period was a noble attempt by the Maccabean family to break loose from their Syrian captors, but they lost big time. Their dynasty was completely wiped out. Later, the Hellenists swallowed up Syria, and Rome, and the Greeks. It was not unusual for Roman citizens to flaunt their position of conqueror by compelling the Jews to carry their burdens for a standard distance. The Greek word, forces, if someone forces you to go one mile, That is a word which means to press into service. That is, to conscript them. No choice. It's the same word used of the Roman soldiers when they forced Simon of Cyrene to carry Jesus' cross because he had become too weak from his torture to do it himself. Matthew 27, verse 32. They just grabbed a hold of Simon Cyrene and said, here, you carry this cross. He didn't have any say about it. He was forced into service. And so our Lord's instruction here was this. When you're forced to carry the burdens of a Roman citizen for one mile, go two. That is, give beyond what is expected of you. Exceed the requirements of the law. And in doing this, they showed love to their captors, which was extremely unusual. I mean, think about this. The Jews being kind to Romans, soldiers. You can see how this guards against the legalistic interpretation of godly love there will always be some who will be tempted to say to themselves, all right, if love is giving, I'll give, but I'm not going to break my back over this. But our Lord is saying that He expects us break your back over this. You're conscripted to go one mile, go two. Double. We are to give beyond the bare minimum or the letter of the law. We are to go the extra mile in love and love sacrificially, love when it means hurt to us or loss to us. We're to give to our enemies what good we can do for them, whereas the cheats of the world only love those who love them. Jesus talks about that. Matthew 5, you can read about it, verse 46 and 47. But not only so, we're to love our enemies in such a way that when they demand one thing, we give that, we do, but we also add what they have not commanded. We surprise them with a kindness they had not bargained for at all. You see, if you you stop at duty, if you stop there, if you stop at the letter of the law, your enemy will never know that you're giving out of love. Only God only love gives sacrificially. It's the measure of the extent of our love. You didn't ask for it, but I'm giving it. Why are you giving it? It's because I want you to know that I care for you. Now, the Bible has copious examples of people who loved others magnanimously that is above and beyond their call of duty. For example, Abraham rushed to rescue his brother, King James says, Lot, who had been captured in a war, Genesis fourteen fourteen. Yet we know that this was his nephew Lot, whose trouble was due to an earlier occasion in which he had displayed the most blatant greed and selfishness in choosing all of the Jordan Valley for his homestead, and he left Abraham the leftovers. God never promised Lot the Jordan Valley. That was promised to Abraham. But Abraham and his grace, when they came upon this vast land, he said to Lot, you choose first. And Lot went, hmm, yeah, boy, that Jordan Valley, that has a stream running through it. That's great for my sheep, or my cattle. Not only that, but look at the land on both sides of that river. It's rich and green because it's obviously getting benefit from there. I just choose the um, the Jordan Valley, and Abraham said, "Okay, if you go that way, then I'm going to go in the opposite direction." What was the opposite direction? Uh, we would call it scrubland. You know, the thistles, the thorns, the. Uh, hard to plow, hard to get any crops out of. We have some of that in our western states as well. But what was Abraham to do? He was left with the leftovers. And God blessed him for that, but it shows a lot in his greed. Joseph, another example, showered luxurious gifts of love and kindness upon his brothers and established them in Goshen, the prime real estate of Egypt. Remember, they came down during the famine. They had already sold Joseph into slavery. They didn't know Joseph was now the vice-regent of all of Egypt. But, Joseph recognized them they didn't recognize him when they came looking for real estate or help Joseph put them in the land of Goshen the prime land of Egypt these are the same brothers who had planned his murder and that failing they sold him into slavery to Midian traders and route to Egypt you can read it in Genesis 50 David, on two separate occasions, spared Saul's life when he was close enough to Saul to to spit on him. He didn't spit on him, though, but he took a knife, or probably a knife, and he cut out a part of the seam of Saul's robe to show Saul in the next few days how close he got to Saul and how he could have taken Saul's life had he wanted to. Yet Saul was his avowed enemy. He had been in the field with his troops searching for David to destroy him, 1 Samuel 24. What a difference between the two of these. Do you remember the story of Elisha? He spread a table before the invading Syrians whom God had struck with blindness in order to spare Israel. They couldn't find them because they were blind. He literally fed his enemies food and drink and then returned them to their homestead safe and with their sight restored. 2 Kings 6. Who does that to an enemy that's right there to kill you? And he brought his army with him. Those that love the Lord and know that the Lord, his hands are upon you. You don't have to be retaliatory or cruel in return. The father of the prodigal, welcomed his wayward son who had squandered his inheritance away with wine and women. The father did more. He killed the fattened calf, threw a big party, placed his own best robe on and a golden ring on his returning son, treating him like royalty who had treated the father with contempt. Luke 15. Who does things like this? These are all examples of ordinary men, just sinners in their own right, who nonetheless demonstrated sacrificial love. It is doable, brethren. We can love each other unselfishly. Having said all that, however... Our greatest example is the Lord himself, of whom Paul writes, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Ephesians 5 verse 2. So, brethren, we need to see this morning that the nature of godly love is couched not only in the command of Christ to us as his disciples, but it is couched in his own example. And his example exhorts us to love sacrificially, to love beyond the letter of the law, to love till it hurts, to love with a generous, abounding heart, of compassion. This and this alone will mark us as the disciples of Christ to the world. This is living, which needs no words to commend it. The actions speak for themselves. So I asked this morning, what is the message that your life is conveying to the world? Do your neighbors know that you love them? Or would they laugh at that idea? Do your spiritual brothers and sisters in the church know that you love them? How do they know that? Do you show them love? Do you ever do anything to put yourself out for them? When does that happened? And if you can't remember the last time, it's probably been a long time. And it is doubtful that your love is characterized by sacrifice. Sacrificial love is not a fit. It's not a spurt. It is an ongoing reality of love by the very nature of it. We're to love that way. We've looked at this godly love we are to have for one another and we've seen that it is commanded love, it is sacrificial love. But there's a third thing here. Note that it is a special or selective love. Verse 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is going to do. It's master's business. Instead, I have called you friends, for everything that I learned from the Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. This is my command love each other. Does God love his enemies? Think about this. We've already demonstrated that he does have a love towards the ungodly. We read from Matthew 5, verse 43 and following that our charge from Christ to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us is so that we may be sons of our Father in heaven who graciously showers the pagan Farmer's fields, with rain and sunshine, just as he does the believing farmer's field. Love being giving, as we've been learning. We have a clear indicator in the text of God loving his enemies. He blesses their crops as well as our crops. And Jesus could not make the comparison between his charge to us to love our enemies and God's conduct of giving good things to his enemies unless those good things were viewed as expressions of love from God's point of view. For him is his part. And this is why Jesus goes on to say that our love is to excel the normal conduct of the world which is simply to love those who love them. <laughs> but God loves his enemies. We are to love our enemies. Do you know that Paul says in Romans, we were once the enemies of cannot forget the context of this passage, which is the Pharisaical error stated in verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was not God's teaching. It was not God's doing. That's something the Pharisees came up with. Coming to our text today, we see the same holy concept of love for our enemies. Verse 18 tells us that the world hated Christ before it ever aided the disciples of Christ. Verse 23 says, he who hates me hates my father as well. Of course. They're one in essence. They're one in nature. So if you hate the one, you hate the other. Whatever Jesus is, God the Father is. Now these statements on the world's hatred of Jesus shows that he had enemies. He had those who hated him and wanted to get rid of him. But he who cannot lie went on to say in our text, verse 25, they hated me without reason, without a cause. How so? Because every word Christ spoke to the people, verse 22, every work Jesus performed, verse 24, was with the people's good in mind, healing the sick. Exercising of demons. Boy, that was a big thing in biblical days. Raising of the dead. Jesus gave these skeptical Jews all the miraculous signs their unbelieving hearts demanded. He says that. You're always looking for miracles. And then he tells them, and I've done them. In that particular text, he says, don't you remember the feeding of the 5,000? and later the feeding of the 4,000. What is more, he gave them the gospel of God, which was essential to their salvation. The Jews received that from Jesus. Yet despite Christ's gifts of the good, the right, the true, despite this obvious love for them as his people, they hated him nonetheless. This is why I said the other week that if you're giving good to others and working at it, you're loving them. No matter if you do not receive a favorable response in return. Christ, like the Father, had a love for his enemies. And I begin here because too often in grace circles, we are so consumed by God's effectual love for his elect. We ignore or worse deny that God has any love for the world. Well, he does. One of the great and powerful arguments on the judgment of the unrepentant by the Apostle Paul is to this effect. Let me read it for you. Do you show contempt for the riches of his, God's, kindness, tolerance, patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2, verse 4 and 5. His point is that because God has been kind and loving towards mankind, because he has patiently endured men's unbelief, their skepticism, their cynicism, yes, and their stubbornness too, there's coming a day of his wrath in which those who have spurned his overtures of love and mocked his goodness through unbelief will be judged for the love of God they have rejected. So I caution. You here today, if you're resting on the hope that a loving God would never damn you or anyone to hell, can you not hear what Paul is saying? God's love rejected, God's love despised, God's love used as a basis for you to remain in a state of stubbornness and unrepentant of your sin is the signature of your own just judgment. Paul is saying it works like a depository. That is to say, every day that you reject Christ and refuse to turn from your life of sin, a deposit is made in the storehouse of God's wrath. But there's coming a day when the cup of God's wrath will be filled to the brim, a day in which his patience will run out, do we not remember Noah's day? When the cup was full, there was no place for his wrath to go except to spill out upon those who had been making deposits, deposits, deposits for decades with no remorse. You will not be able to withstand the river of God's wrath, any more than Noah's generation could withstand the great flood. This is a terrible day coming. It's a dreadful day. And you will have no one to blame but yourself if you enter that day as an unbeliever. Those most Most privileged, those much blessed by the goodness and love of God will be the most culpable for turning their backs on the grace of God. Paul writes it this way. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jews, the religious, then for the Gentiles, the profane. Romans 2, verse 9. No one escapes. If this is you this morning, you need to flee from the wrath to come by hiding in the safety of Jesus, the rock, the shelter, indeed, the only shelter in the time of storm. God has a love for the unbelieving, and that love will heighten their culpability. In the day of judgment, because God will be able to say, What have I done to you to deserve your hatred of me? All of your life, even before your life, I set on a path of loving you, caring for you in every way. But now we come to the heart of the matter. God has a love for his enemies but a special love for his own spiritual family. This can be observed within the Trinity itself. God the Father loves his Son in a unique and unparalleled way. Let me read it for you. John 3 verse 35 The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. John 5, verse 20. Or again, the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He does. John 10, verse 17. Or Jesus' statement, the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. Or in our text, verse 9, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And in his prayer just hours before his death, the thing which sustains Christ is this thought. You loved me, referring to the Father. You loved me before the creation of the world. John 17, verse 24. Christ is even the recipient of God's electing love. Here is my servant whom I uphold my chosen one, my elect one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Isaiah forty two verse one and Luke twenty three thirty five. Identifies Jesus on the cross as this one of whom Isaiah prophesied, calling him the Christ of God, the chosen one. How Christ can be co equal with the Father and self sufficient and yet be chosen of God, the recipient of electing love, is the mystery of the whole thing that will have to wait to glory to find out and understand it. But though we cannot comprehend it, we accept it because God says it. And the point of all this is that God the Father loves his son Jesus with a love like he loves no other person. His love for him is unique. This is also true when we talk about God's love for us as his people. I mean, say what you will about God having a love for all of his creatures, and he does. There is yet a special, electing, saving love for his people, which none else experience. John 13, verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Verse 23, one of them, the disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him at the dinner table. Verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. Or in our text, verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And John, the author of all these words, as an old man, exiled on the island of Patmos, was still enthralled, still exhilarated by the thought of God's special love for his people. Here's what he wrote. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and has made us a kingdom of priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That's in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, which John wrote, as well as the Gospel of John. This, too, is electing law. For Paul wrote to the Ephesian church, telling them, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, Made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. And verse 12 and following, same text goes on to say, Remember, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel without hope, without God in the world. So we were in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Well wow. There's no idea here that all men without exception share in this exclusive and special love. This, is, uh, this love is only for those whom God has brought near to himself through the blood of Christ. The world at large has no claims upon God's saving love. Salvation originates with him. He chooses whom he loves. He loves whom he wills. Our text, verse 16, says, You did not choose me. I chose you. Verse 19, as it is. You do not belong to the world. I chose you out of the world. Aren't these verses really clear? Shows us where we were where God was, and what God did for us when we were nothing but sinners and part of this world. I don't know how much clearer it could be that there are degrees of love in Scripture, even different kinds of love, even when discussing God's love for people. God loves those who love his Son in a special and unique way that is different from the ordinary love showered upon mankind in general. And the point of all this for our study and Jesus' command to us to love one another as the Father has loved him is this. While we are to have a love for our neighbor next door, our co-worker, our unbelieving family members, There is warrant for saying that we are to love the brethren of the body of Christ with that special kind of love that God expresses towards his children alone. The idea that we're to love everyone equally is preposterous. You can't do it. Even God does not do this. Galatians 6.10, As we have opportunity... Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You see how the scripture separates things out? Jesus speaking to people in the day of judgment states, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. In Matthew twenty five forty, while we are to aid the poor of our culture, Paul says this share with God's people who are in who who are in need of practical hospitality. In other words, let the impoverished brother share your house. Wow. That's deep love. Back back then, by the way. They lost their houses through conscription. One of the ways that Rome punished Jews and Christians. So the question comes, what is there about your love for the brethren of Christ, which is special? I ask that about myself. How is it distinguished from the love you have for your next-door neighbor? Do you have no more interest, no more consideration of the needs and hurts, the sorrows, the tears of those in the family of God than you do over the one who is practically a stranger to you? I think there's something very wrong when we can put ourselves out to help our neighbor put up his pole barn but we can't be by the side of a brother or sister, who has just had their spiritual underpinnings shaken by some tragedy that God has brought into their way by His providence—a loss of a loved one, loss of their work, loss of their job. Jesus asked Peter if he loved Him more than these referring to the other disciples. And in so asking, he was claiming the right to be loved by Peter, whose allegiance and love faltered when he denied Jesus the night of his trial. Peter loved himself that night more than he loved the Lord. Granted, he was fearful for himself. In similar fashion, God calls on us to love his people more than we love ourselves. But do we? Let me put it this way. What sacrifice have you made for the brothers of Christ which demonstrate a selfless love? Do you participate in things which will help Build your brother up in the faith, or is that just too much work? What have you ever done that didn't first begin with a statement? I don't want to do that. More importantly, what have you ever done for the brethren that you specifically did not want to do, but you did it because you love God and you love God's people? and we're willing to sacrifice your desires for that brother's good. That's real love. Sacrificial love. Teaching a class. Chaperoning a youth outing. Babysitting a couple so that they could have a night out. Praying. Reading the scripture in the middle of the night to someone rushed to the hospital emergency room. John wrote in 1 John 5 verse 1, everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. Can't get away from it. In the days of Rome when there was so much going on in terms of persecution. The thing that spoke to the world most was their observation of the Christians. My, how they love one another. Even the pagan world of that day could see, say what you will about those Religious nuts. You got to give them this. They love one another. They do. And it's unique, it's different. We don't see that in our world. Greed, anger, hatred. Murder, stealing, immorality, sin everywhere. But those people love one another. Everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. First John five. Let us be about the business, the privilege of being in a family where we are, brothers and sisters, in Christ, which is a tighter bond for many of you, some of you, than the love among one's family, earthly family. You have it. I know I have it. I have family members that don't love Christ. They just come right out and say that. They have no time for him. And they tolerate me if I'm there trying to share spiritual things with them. I've even had them turn the TV on while I've been trying to talk to them. Oh, let's watch this sports thing here and so forth. They didn't want to hear anything that had to do with the gospel. Yet their soul is hanging in the balance. Football? Soul. Oh, I choose football. And apart from the grace of God. That'll never change. To God first. We need to be people of prayer, trusting in God's electing grace for our family members that just have no time for the gospel. Consequently, very little time for us if we're doing our work of sharing the gospel with Jesus says, and he put it plainly, they're going to hate mother and father and sister and brother because of my, for my sake. In that sense, Jesus isn't uniting families, he's maintaining distances. The difference between chosen and Christ and not chosen. And it's going to take God's grace and mercy to bring the not chosen over into the chosen of Christ. We don't give up on our relatives and friends just because they're hostile. We remember, mm, I remember those days I remember when I didn't want to go to church, I didn't have anything to do with God. I wanted to be with my friends. I wanted to be out playing. I wanted to be this or that. And as I grew older, I didn't have time for God either. Let us remember those days and remember that grace stepped in and drew us. Jesus put it this way, you didn't choose me. I chose you and drew you to me. All that the Father gives me are drawn to me. John six forty four. Our Lord we're thankful for that electing grace and oh, the fact that when we were rebelling against you as our enemies and we just assumed You leave us alone so that we can do our own thing and our own thing being sin and loving it, being thrilled with it. No time for holiness. No time for God. No time for your son. Oh Lord, we just thank you and praise you that you didn't give up on us. That you kept pursuing us by your Holy Spirit and through the power of the Spirit drew us into the kingdom of God. You changed our heart. You changed our minds. You gave us something that we didn't know we wanted or that we needed, but you did it anyway because of your great love. Who does things like that? Only our God. That's sacrificial We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have a closing hymn. And then take a 10-minute break and regather for the Lord's table.
1: brown, 560, and when you find that, will you stand, and we're going to do verses 1, 3, and 5, 560 in the brown.
2: I thought it got awfully quiet here. Take a 10-minute break and regather when you hear the music.